0: Apple Podcast or wherever you get
3: your podcast.
4: You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both. On last week's episode, I picked up a phrase from my friend Luis Miranda that I just love. He said, as I get older, I get bolder. <laughs> I know exactly what he means. It's something I see not only in myself, but in many of the people that I admire, especially women of a certain age who are in the public eye. Now, whether that means not holding back with your opinions or saying no to the things you don't want to do or the people you don't want to see or saying yes to the things you've always wanted to do, but either were afraid to try or didn't have time, you name it, these women are getting bolder as they get Older. And today we're going to hear from three such incredible women. Later, I'll be talking to my friends, U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii and actor Glenda Jackson, who, between winning two Academy Awards and a Tony Award, and I think a couple of Emmys as well, served in the British Parliament for 23 years. But first, I'm talking to the one and only Congresswoman Maxine Waters. I've been a big fan of Maxine Waters since I first learned about her. And it's not hard to see why. Maxine has served as a member of Congress for South Los Angeles for over 30 years. And over that time, she's earned a reputation as a stalwart champion for progressive values who speaks her mind and doesn't suffer fools. She emerged as one of the fiercest, most vocal critics of the last presidential administration, and she has never stopped fighting for what she believes in. In fact, She became an internet celebrity when she refused to let a certain former Secretary of the Treasury run out the clock during a hearing she was chairing. She sure did reclaim her time. And she's doing all of this at the age of 83. Now, before going into politics, Maxine was active in community organizing, the Head Start program. She served on the board of the Ms. Foundation She's been a mentor and inspiration to countless people over the years. I always get a kick out of talking with Maxine Waters, and I was so delighted she had time to be on the podcast. Hello, Maxine.
4: Hello. How are you doing, Hillary?
3: (laughs) Welcome to the show, and... Obviously, we're going to talk about your long career in public service and politics, but before we get to that, I'd like our listeners to know more about where it all started. I know you grew up in St. Louis in a pretty busy household. I think you were the fifth of 13 children, right?
4: Yeah, I was actually, I think, the (laughs) fourth.
3: Well, I think that's where you must have figured out that... You had a talent for organizing. (laughs) How would you describe, you know, what you wanted to be when you were a little girl growing up in that big family in St. Louis?
4: Hillary, as I think back on it, we were all made to be very independent at a very early age. We had to be uh, because my mother, uh, who had so many, you know, children, I certainly could not pay attention to all of us. And so we had to learn how to do for ourselves. But I also had wonderful school teachers in St. Louis. Mm. I was an athlete. I ran track. I played volleyball. I played basketball. And I became a very good swimmer. And this was all because the neighborhood, you got to do things at your, your community center. But one of the stories that I've told Uh, often is this. Part of the time we were on welfare and the social workers would come to your home uh, to review whether or not you were in compliance uh, with the rules of, you know, getting the benefits. And so they were always dressed very nicely. Uh, They had lots of authority. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to be. And, um, I worked when I was very young. When I was about 13, I had a job in a restaurant, a Thompson's restaurant. And it was not integrated, and I cleaned tables, and uh, we had to eat our food in the basement uh, because they wouldn't allow you to eat, you know, in the restaurant. But that's what I used to buy my clothing to go back to school in September. And so I tried to dress well, you know, look good. Uh, and I earned the money to do pretty well with that. And that's kind of generally, you know, my background. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, however you put it together, you learned how to dress really well, Maxine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is one of the things that I have admired oh, uh, for many, many years. You know, you, you really know how to put it together. Oh, uh, so you went from admiring those social workers to thinking maybe about politics Did becoming a congresswoman ever cross your mind?
4: Politics began to cross my mind early. I was chosen uh, to do speeches, you know, and I was taken once uh, to a big event by a teacher uh, in another city where I represented my school. uh, And then I was encouraged uh, to do speaking. And um, I began, you know, to think about uh, in high school, Uh, various kinds of activities that provided leadership opportunities. And I think that's what led me to believe uh, that perhaps I could do something of service. But it really Mm -hmm. didn't happen until I was married uh, at a very young age. And I... I got involved with the Head Start program. The war on poverty was a magnificent thing that happened in this country, and it created all of these programs. And Head Start was so attractive. It was going to offer to our little children an opportunity for early childhood education, which of course, the average working family or poor families certainly could not afford. And I went to work for Head Start as an assistant teacher. But Head Start was a real uh, beginning for me. I, too, was learning. I was learning a lot about myself. We had these interactive programs where the staffs dealt with each other, helping each other to understand what we cared about and basically what was our philosophy in life. And it was out of Head Start that I really became me and uh, got involved with the community started to volunteer in campaigns learned how to you know do everything mm-hmm. from design brochures to raise a little money to organize uh, get out the vote efforts whatever and that was what catapulted me into running for office I love
3: the connection between Head Start and you getting a start. I I really love that, Maxine. And then you ran for um, a state assemblywoman position, right? To be in the uh, California Assembly. And that was, I think, 1976. Is that about right? That's right. And, you know, you you got elected. Off you went to uh, Sacramento. Um, What was that? initial experience like for you, showing up as a representative of your constituents in the state capitol?
4: Well, you know, there were several things going on. When I ran, it was really at the height of the women's movement. And so when I was in the assembly, I went there without having had any formalized experience as a legislator. So I just tried a lot of things. The first thing I tried was this, and you're going to laugh at this. We were all called assembly man, and I oh, thought yes. we're not men, <laughs> and so, I, <laughs> and so I decided I was going to change it. And so, mm-hmm. little did I know that the men really were absolutely insulted. Uh, by the idea that this young uh, woman was gonna come in and change uh, the way that people may be referred to. And so I got on the floor, I presented my bill and they came after me, boy did they come after me. And of course I lost, but later on uh-huh. coming behind me, some of the women were able to get a change to assembly member based on what I started. <laughs>
3: Well, I mean, you have started a lot throughout your entire history. You know, you're now one of the longest serving women in the House, and you have many more women colleagues than you had when you started or that you had when you were back uh, in state government in California. So how has the world of politics changed from your beginning work, and especially how has it changed
4: for women's? Well, uh, and it certainly has changed uh, tremendously. One of the things that happened to me was Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem and these women I got connected to. We had a big conference uh, in Houston, Texas, where we were going to help Jimmy Carter understand how he could include women in his administration, and the kinds of things that we cared about. Well, the conference was fantastic, but Jimmy Carter didn't take too kindly to us, and he and uh, Bella Ebza kind of, you know, didn't hit it off too well. And so they fired (laughs) Bella, and we all quit. Mm. And so (laughs) Uh Uh (laughs) we all quit, uh, but of course, I was asked to serve on the board of the M.I.S. Foundation and that was a tremendous experience. We had women who sent us unsolicited proposals. That's why I learned so much about what we could do about violence against women, what we could Mm -hmm. do about opening up opportunities for women to see themselves in non-traditional jobs. That's when I learned about women who were suffering, not only from oftentimes, you know, violence, uh, but lack of basic resources. And so I took many of those unsolicited proposals while I was serving on the Ms. Foundation Board, and I tried to turn them into something real as a legislator now in Sacramento, where I could basically be responsible for changing public policy. And I want you to know that back then, of course, I learned and knew a lot about discrimination, and I knew a lot about racism, but I didn't really understand the depth of it because it had not been taught. In our schools uh our parents never really talked about it every now and then you could get a story about some experience that they'd had uh their grandparents had had uh, when there was a hanging somewhere in the south where they were where there was a burning and then i got involved with a local group here who was getting involved with the civil rights movement in la it was a, a local naacp and some ministers that I got involved with. And that's what got me more involved in the civil rights movement.
3: That got you going. (laughs) And you haven't stopped yet, Uh, which I love about you. (laughs) So eventually you decided to run for Congress. What year was that?
4: Well, let me tell you, uh, Augustus Hawkins was the uh, congressman of the area, and he had decided to retire. And when I decided I wanted to run and he was retiring, I asked him to support me.
3: Congressman Hawkins was legendary. That's right. He was one of the most effective members of Congress for his time. And the fact that he was an African-American who ascended the ranks within the House of Representatives uh, was incredibly impressive. And describe where your district is in L.A., because it's a very important area
4: Yes, well, let me tell you, at that time, uh, the district was, was different. Even though they had a substantial black population, we had smaller towns that were basically white. And I can remember uh, a few things about that campaign and how we decided to try and appeal to the whites in the district. And so even though we didn't get all of that support, uh, we certainly did have enough of it in order to be successful in the way Gus Hawkins was. But he had done a lot. That was a day when we had really more organized efforts that we have today.
3: I agree with that.
4: We had a group of women, welfare rights women, who were organized.
3: Oh, I remember that.
4: And they understood, you know, how to work with government. And they understood how to be advocates. The women in that group were very inspiring to me also. They spoke up and they spoke out. And I can see them today just as clearly as if they were still with us. Most of them have passed on. John and Mae Tillman, Mary Henry. These were strong women. And they not only were advocates in welfare rights. We had one woman who went to the school board regularly, and if they did not pay attention to her, she would not leave. And she was advocating for the children and senior citizens and even with housing. Uh, But these women, they opened the doors for a lot of opportunities.
3: And they also made a real difference at the local, state, and federal level. They did changing laws and regulations. Well, I want to fast forward, Maxine, because you know right now it seems like a very difficult time in Congress, and we have seen sadly uh, both the Voting Rights Bill and Build Back Better fail. And every day, House Republicans seem to be drifting further and further into extremism. How does this moment compare to others you've experienced over you know, your long and storied career?
4: Hillary, it's a terrible time in the Congress of the United States of America. I am so offended by what has happened and what is happening to us now. I am so outraged about the lack of respect for the Constitution, a lack of respect for this democracy, a lack of what it means to be a public servant working for the people. It is awful.
3: You know, Maxine, something has happened to the people that you and I served with. Why are... So few of the people actually in the Congress, both the House and the Senate, willing to stand up and say, we cannot go along with the big lie, the big steal, the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Do you think we can ever get back to what should be the norms of behavior and
4: and working? I have to be a person of optimism no matter what. Because, you know, the idea that we would have to, in, to tolerate uh, something like a Trump, you know, in this country without bring, making him accountable for the harm that he has caused and continues to cause is not something I can live with. So, yes, we're in this time and we're in this space where people who are sitting in the House of Representatives, for sure, who belong to QAnon, who supports the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and still the KKK, right in the House. They're sitting there, and they have uh, demonstrated whom they are. But I think that, you know, the people are seeing this and wondering, how could this be? And I think that Uh, The people's anger about this will reveal itself, even as early in the June primaries.
3: We're taking a quick break. Stay with us.
9: Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
3: You know, you and I are women of a certain age, and I think it's pretty tremendous that you just keep going from strength to strength. I mean, do you feel any different? Do you feel like people treat you any differently now that, you know, you're older than you were when you first ran for office and uh, have served all these years? Yeah, there's
4: more talk about age and some of our younger people, you know, talk <laughs> about age, etc. cetera. But I want to tell you, when I watch you walk, you walk like this. Your shoulders are up and you walk with pride and dignity. Now, young people, I want them to take a look at that, because we're women of age. We're mature women. We've matured, right. and mm-hmm. we're not walking like this. We're not. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we're not all hunched looking, looking at yeah, the ground. We're not
4: all <laughs> that. We're not all sad and what have you. <laughs> and so, just watch us, young people. Just watch us, and hope. Before
3: we have to wrap up, I want to ask you for some advice. Yes. We've both been in and out of uh, politics at the highest level. We've both been in campaigns. We're very familiar with all of the challenges and stereotypes facing uh, women in leadership positions. What advice do you give to young women, even girls, who want to know whether they should get into public life, you know, maybe even run for office.
4: Well, I encourage those who are interested to do it, to run for office. Mm -hmm. And then I talk about as much as I can, what I think it takes uh, to be a good elected official and, you know, examining the reason you want to do it. This is about where are you coming from philosophically? Who are you? Mm-hmm. Have you come to grips with whom you are and what you really care about? And having a philosophy about life. And then I think if you do, then you can do almost anything because you're not going to be pulled in 999 different directions. You have a clarity of purpose and a clarity of understanding what you care about. So I talk a lot about getting in touch with self.
3: That is such great advice, Maxine. I mean, that's great advice for anybody thinking about doing anything, you know, to thine own self be true, but that requires you got to know who yourself is and why you are doing what you're doing. I'll tell you, Maxine Waters, I am so grateful for our friendship, all that we have been able to experience together. And I'm so appreciative that you took your time out of your incredibly busy schedule to be on this podcast, because I think your words are going to mean so much to so many.
4: Well, thank you for inviting me. You know, I've always loved and supported you. And I think you are perhaps one of the most ready leaders that ever approach running for president of the United States. And you should have been. You should have been elected. (laughs) But whatever you want to do. Uh, I support you, and I want you to know that you and I have just began to mature. We've got a lot left (laughs) in us.
3: (laughs) Amen, Sister, amen. (laughs) Keep your eye on Congresswoman Maxine Waters, because she sure does have a lot left in her. Our next guest will be familiar to fans of great actors and members of parliament alike. Glenda Jackson was born in Liverpool in 1936. She began acting in her teens, and by the 1970s achieved the rare distinction of winning two Academy Awards for Best Actress, not to mention two Emmy Awards for her iconic portrayal of Queen Elizabeth on television. In 1978, Glenda was bestowed with the highest honor in the United Kingdom for contributions to the arts and sciences, the most excellent order of the British Empire. But then, in 1992, she took an abrupt break from acting to actually run for a seat in Parliament, and she was elected to the House of Commons as a member of the Labour Party and stayed in office for the next 23 years. Now, at that point, after conquering the heights of two, no different fields, they have some, oh, connections. Uh, What do they say? You know, being in politics in Washington is, uh, you know, theater for ugly people. I don't know, something like that. Most people would welcome the chance to head into retirement, but not Glenda. Instead, she decided to return to the stage. Now, just a few years ago, before the pandemic, I had the immense pleasure of seeing her on Broadway in two remarkable performances, in Three Tall Women, for which she won a Tony, and in the title role in Shakespeare's King Lear, which she took on at the tender age of 82. I cannot tell you how thrilled I was when she agreed to speak with me for this podcast. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Well, it's a privilege to see you and to be able to speak to you. (laughs) You know, I was thinking back um, when preparing to talk with you to the first time I knew of you, which was when I saw... Women in Love. Oh wow. All those years ago. Yeah. Indeed. I had just just graduated from college. I had read the book. I really was interested in going to the movie and just <laughs> adored it. Good. And yeah. And so you have been someone kind of in my consciousness for a very long time. But I know that you really had done so much before that, before you won an Academy Award for that, and then you won another one a few years later for a Touch of Class. How did you decide that you wanted to become an actor? How do you make that decision? A friend of mine was a
10: member of a local amateur dramatic society. I'd left school. I was working in a local chemist shop. I felt there was more to life than I was experiencing, that possibly I may have had more to contribute. And... Someone said to me, you should go to a drama school. And I thought, well, okay, I'll try. So I did an audition for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art for a scholarship. And they wrote back and said, if we'd had a scholarship, you'd have got it. But we haven't, so you haven't. (laughs) And fortunately, the manager of my chemist shop wrote to my local authority. This was in the days when local authorities actually had the money to afford the kind of opportunities for all of us. And they gave me the scholarship. And so there
3: I was at drama school. And, and did you feel when you got to the Royal Academy that you belonged there? Or were you feeling a little bit awkward about whether this was right for you? No, no, I didn't feel that because it was a
10: very varied intake of other students as well from all over the country. And what year was that, Glenda? That must have been... About sixty years ago, I mean, I was nineteen, so more than that because I'm older now. Well, we both are. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what was your big break? So you go to drama school. A lot of people go to drama schools. oh yes, i had I had years of unemployment.
10: I yeah, mean I don't right. think there's a job that I can't do because I have to <laughs> take, take any kind of job to to earn a living. I suppose the really big break was Women in Love. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'd done quite a bit of theater work, but it was, I think, that film that was the big breakthrough.
3: So you do your first major film and you get nominated for an Academy Award. Uh What was that experience like?
10: When that came out, I was doing another film and I sort of didn't regard it as being central to my life it never occurred to me that I'd get one Mm -hmm. so when it did happen I look back on it now and that it was quite extraordinary because I was a great disappointment to all the kind of journalists (laughs) because I didn't look the way they thought people who were nominated should look you know what I mean
3: I do know what you mean yes you know what I mean (laughs) And, but then you did it again. It was almost like, okay, you don't think I am? Here we go again. You did it. what, like four or five years later, you get another absolutely, absolutely. Academy Award for Best yep. Actress. Well, apparently a lot of audiences and others uh, were very receptive because you've gone on to just this, this extraordinary career. Well, you've had several careers. But um, I imagine that being an actor has changed a lot over the years. I mean, do you do you feel that or I think fundamentally
10: it stays the same, but what has changed is what actors are asked to do. And there has been variable standards from excellence to pathetically dreadful that actors are asked to participate in and it is still a hugely overcrowded profession. Right. And certainly women are still second, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the majority of of drama still has women as mere adjuncts or victims. They're rarely, if ever, the central driving dramatic engine. And that I find quite bizarre, certainly given that it is contemporary writers who still go ahead with that, to my mind, somewhat old-fashioned view of our gender.
3: Yeah. Well, you made an incredibly dramatic decision when you decided to go into politics. How did you make that decision, Glenda? Because I couldn't
10: bear what was happening to my country. I'd always been politically interested and I'd always voted and things like that. And I just could not believe the direction in which the then prime minister um, was driving my country.
3: And Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister you were... Reacting to. She was mm-hmm. indeed, yeah,
10: yeah. It was just incredible. I mean, the the things that I saw under that prime ministership, schools where there were virtually no libraries anymore. I mean, the kind of lack of concern for everybody was something that I just found intolerable. And I had worked for members of the Labour Party and I'd campaigned for them and things like that. And a few constituencies had suggested to me that I stand myself. And eventually I thought, okay, I'll have a go. I never expected to actually win the seat, but I did. And there I was for the next (laughs) 23 years of my
3: life. (laughs) Starting in uh, what, 1992, is that right? Yes, yes. So when you were elected, much to your surprise, what did you bring from your acting career to your political career? I
10: was not, I thought, afraid of standing up in the House of Commons and making a speech. Mm-hmm. until I actually had to stand up and make a speech. <laughs> <laughs> and it all suddenly crumbled around me. But I was very clear in what I disliked, what I held in some ways to be almost sacred about what I wanted my country to be and how I felt we should treat one another. And it was very interesting from one aspect, um, because everybody it seemed to me already in Parliament, expected me to behave like some mad diva and demand, (laughs) you know, a central position and the best seat and all that kind of stuff. That's not how the theater works, Mm -hmm. um, which is essentially, you know, teamwork. I mean, you have to work with other people. Um, And so that came as a bit of a shock. But after a while, that all sort of calmed down and I was acknowledged as being just another MP. Yeah.
8: Well,
3: I I had the same experience when I was elected to the Senate. Yes. Well, there is a difference
10: between being married to the president of the United States.
3: Well, that that was my theater experience for sure. And right. so when I was when I was elected and showed up, a very experienced senator said to me, "Well, the question is, will you be a show horse or a workhorse?"
10: Oh wow! And I said,
3: "I've always been a workhorse me and too. put my head down, get to work, try to you know make a difference," and and it did. Uh, Over time, slowly change the opinion to maybe even the apprehension that I would be more of a a show horse. But when you're in that position, as you were in Parliament, as I was in the United States Senate, it's fascinating because it is a form of theater. Absolutely,
10: absolutely. Mm
3: -hmm. Nonetheless, that experience was very
10: eye-opening for me. The thing I find most bewildering, in a sense, is that. We are expected to be perfect. We're not expected to be human. We're expected to be perfect and to fail consistently. Mm -hmm. And that I just find very bizarre, you know.
3: And if you're a woman, the double oh, standard is alive and well, isn't it?
10: Absolutely. Absolutely. Where everybody seems to be far more concerned about what you're wearing and how you're looking than what you're saying or what you're thinking or doing.
3: Oh, yeah. I've been there, done that. Um, I'll
10: bet you have. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but what's so fascinating to me is that, you know, after 23 years in Parliament, so you were consistently reelected by your constituents. You retired. And you retired shortly before your 79th birthday. That's right, yep. And look, many people would have uh, begun a very well deserved retirement, Glenda, but that's not what you did. You decided to return to acting. How did you decide that? Well, honestly, it was quite fortuitous.
10: I mean, I'd done some stuff for the BBC radio, and then I was asked to do a play. And someone suggested I do Lear, and I thought, you don't get this kind of offer <laughs> every day of the week. I have to do this. And I did. And it was really fascinating to me because I've been away, you know, from a theatre as a workplace for, as you say, more than 20 years. And the cast of Lear was in the main young. And a lot of the young people in that. Had worked consistently having left drama school, but had never worked on the stage professionally. But for me, it was a comfortable place to be. Um, For them, they had to learn that kind of comfort. And that was quite revelatory. But to be actually back on the stage and to have a live audience in front of you was just extraordinary.
3: We'll be back right after this quick break. So when, you know, word came out that you were literally returning to the stage and doing Lear, I was so excited. I don't know the history, Glenda. How many women, if any, have played Lear in a, in a major theatrical production? I can only off the
10: top of my head think of two. I mean, there would be two English actresses. I can remember doing it. But that kind of gender barrier it essentially has gone. I mean, more and more actresses actually do take on, nine times out of 10, it's Shakespeare, because that's the Mm -hmm. kind of big thing. But in a curious kind of way, my gender didn't influence what I was doing. I mean, as far as trying to do the play, trying to find that character, playing that character, the the gender
3: thing was, was never central. Well, that's the way it felt. I mean, watching you, again, inhabit that character a very well-known character. Indeed. And I never thought when I was watching you that it didn't fit. I felt like it was an integrated performance, that it was you as an actor, not you as a woman actor, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And I mean, that was very central to, to my thinking. And
10: the character of Lear is someone who's never had anybody say no to them in their entire life. And that was the kind of thing that I
3: worked on. The gender was utterly irrelevant. How did you memorize all those lines? Was it a different process than than when you had been acting 25 years before?
10: No, I mean I thank God, and you know, fingers crossed, I've never had any great difficulty in in learning the lines. What I've always found amazing is sort of two days after the last performance, I can't remember a word. <laughs>
3: relate to that you know sometimes i do sometimes i'll make a speech or i'll be in a you know spontaneous back and forth and i'll say something and somebody will come up to me a couple of days later and said oh that was so amazing or i really agreed with you or i didn't agree with you and i cannot remember (laughs) what did i say (laughs) i have to go back and look (laughs) but i think it's Partly self protective. I mean, you get into something in the moment, or in your case, in performance after performance. But when it's done, you almost do have to let it go. I mean, you you need the you need the space.
10: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. People always say to me, you you know, how was the first performance? And every performance is the first performance Mm. because that audience hasn't been there before. You know. It exists when you do it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Every I time do. it's like mm-hmm. the first well, yes, you must know that. Yeah. I mean you've you've had it even harsher than any actors have it.
3: Well, but it but there is a comparison to what you just said in politics, like when you are running for office or when you are out with your constituents and your voters you know, for you, it might be the fifth time you've spoken that day. Oh, indeed. For them, yeah. it's the first time they've seen you. Absolutely. So it yeah. is a performance, not in a negative way, as some people try to portray it, but you have to get up for it. You have to be on your best. You have to convey, you know, the energy and the enthusiasm and the compassion. And you have to connect. And you have to connect. You have to figure out ways to do that. You know, you you and I have been in the public eye, uh, you in two different professions. Um, right. And it's been, I think, for both of us, both rewarding and challenging. Oh, very much so. And, you know, in the course of our lives, we've seen progress for women in public life, but we've also seen some, you know, very stubborn hurdles related to aging and gender. Absolutely. So when you look back on your career, both in acting and in politics, what has changed for the better in the public perception of women and what still needs to change? Well,
10: there are more, if I simply look at Parliament now, there are more women sitting on those green benches than there were when I first sat on them in 1992. And there are women who are in actual professions and jobs and things which a few years ago would not have been considered. But there is still this huge, huge lack in actually listening to what women have to say in many occasions. And there is still this belief that you know, if, if choice has to be made as to who has something, then the male needers are those that are going to be accommodated first, and that's just crazy. Yeah, it's crazy because <laughs> you look at who is actually doing the work. <laughs> nine times out of ten, it's probably a woman.
3: Well, that that is for sure from my experience. Yeah, and and you know, the other thing that I find fascinating is how. Men are allowed to age. Oh. And women are subjected to so much criticism about getting old in front of us. Now, both you and I have aged in front of the Indeed. world. <laughs> and, yeah. and personally, I'm glad I get up every morning. I want I want to keep aging for as long as I can.
10: <laughs> Quite, yes. but it
3: is it is w- another one of these, as you rightly say, bizarre double standards that men become more distinguished. You know, they get with age viewed as more professional and more experienced. And, you know, women, especially now in the world of social media, are diminished, are rejected, are really criticized and even ridiculed for literally aging in public.
10: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is utterly bizarre because,
3: you know, <laughs>
10: today wouldn't
3: exist if it wasn't for the work that women put into it, whether they're paid for it or not. Well, so how have you dealt with it? Like, what would you say to women of a certain age, older women uh, like ourselves, who are encountering this age discrimination, who are feeling diminished, that people are shocked that they still have something to say and contribute. Would you tell them just to ignore it, go full speed ahead? Would you tell them to respond? How would you tell them to handle that? Well, I would think they would be
10: so experienced having had (laughs) that treatment all their
3: lives
10: (laughs) that they would be able to accommodate it. But yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm beginning to get to the stage, I haven't had it up to now, but I can feel it coming, of what the hell? If this is the way you're going to treat me, this is how (laughs) I'm going to react. So what the hell?
3: (laughs) Oh, man, I want to see somebody write a role for you to play that, Uh Glenda. That would be good. (laughs) I, for one, anxiously await whatever is next for you. I mean, I hope I get to see you on the stage again, or I hope I get to see you in some kind of, you know, whatever, streaming or, you know, <laughs> movie or whatever. Well, that's most <laughs> kind of you, thank you.
10: I hope to see you doing what you do so immaculately. Well,
3: we have to keep supporting one another, women of a certain age, I love it.
10: We certainly do, we certainly do.
3: I'm sure we'll be seeing Glenda back on the stage or the screen soon, but in the meantime, why don't you try to track down a copy of Women in Love or any number of her amazing performances from over the years? In 2018, Time magazine ran an article with the title, Maisie Hirono is the only immigrant in the Senate. She's ready to take on Trump. (laughs) And boy, was she ever. Maisie spoke out against family separation, in defense of the Affordable Care Act and doggedly questioned Trump's Supreme Court nominees. Maisie is an immigrant, she was born in Japan, but her mother grew up in Hawaii, went back to Japan and then escaped an abusive marriage to bring Maisie and her brother back to Hawaii when Maisie was just seven years old. Maisie writes about those difficult years when the family struggled to get a foothold in this country, and then about her remarkable journey to the United States Senate in a memoir I really loved called Heart of Fire. It came out last year. During the pandemic, with the rise of violence and harassment against Asian-Americans, Maisie has been a vocal advocate for anti-hate crime legislation. Indeed, she's never stopped speaking her mind and fighting for the people who need a champion. She's done all of this in recent years while battling kidney cancer. Fortunately, she's in good health now, and I was thrilled to catch up with her, especially after reading her amazing book. What inspired you to put pen to paper?
8: My mother, of course, and my husband had been encouraging me to write uh, a memoir, but I kept saying, no, no, no. But my mother had, at that point, suffered two strokes. She was not able to communicate anymore, and I thought, if ever I'm going to do it where I might might be able to still talk to her about it, this was it. Although I couldn't talk to her anyway, but truly, I wanted to finish the book before she passed.
3: I know you lost her uh, in April of 2021, and I want to not only extend my deepest condolences, but to really celebrate her. What an extraordinary human being your mother was.
8: She kind of reminds me of your mother, Hillary. I felt the same way, Maisie. That kind of uh, work, ethics, and her stick courage, and perseverance and everything else. You know, your mother's um,
3: struggles to raise you and your brother on uh, her own during your first years in Hawaii. I did think often uh, page after page about my own mother and her struggles and the you know the courage it took for women of that era to really find their way against so many odds.
8: She literally changed my life. Yeah. By making that courageous decision. And that's why one of my life lessons is one person can make a difference because she changed my life by bringing me to this country.
3: Can you share some of your you know, memories that you tell so beautifully in the book about, you know, those early years as you remember them?
8: My mother never complained. She never talked badly about my father. But I know that for her to have left Japan and put that many miles, an entire ocean between him, his family, and us, I knew that it was a horrible situation and so much courage. Yes, life was pretty basic with mom. And when I think about how we struggled economically, What a difference it would have made if the child care tax credits, $25 a month even for each child, would have made the world of difference because we would run out of money by the end of the month. And we were living pretty simply, I can tell you, in one room, boarding house and all that. And our food was very simple. It would would have made so much difference. That's why on such a personal level, I know what $300, up to $300 per child can mean to a family that's just doing their very best.
3: I... Agree with you completely, and of course, you've gone on to change lives too. Now, <laughs>
8: <laughs> well, it's it's her heart of fire that got passed mm-hmm. on to me. I, I I hope, and I I do think about my mom a lot, and her absence is a, is a huge thing for me. Even if the last two years of her life, she was living in a care facility, which is yet another issue that so many of us share: the need for our aging population for. Caregivers and the pittance we pay them. There's just so much about what we're going through that is so relevant to my lived experience, and it just adds that much fervor to what I get to fight for.
3: It gets you up every morning, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's what is so (laughs) motivating. People often ask me. I'm sure they ask you. I mean, how can you take politics, public service? It seems so hard. It seems. Dirty. It seems just impossible, but yes. when those moments happen that you make a difference, isn't it the best feeling? You really do feel like I am helping somebody. I yes. am making it, <laughs> you know, possible for others to have a better life.
8: And, and that's what I say to myself. You know, people in our country are getting screwed every second, minute, and hour of the day. And if we can decrease that number, we'll be making a difference. We'll be doing our jobs. Yeah, and yeah. that is the thing that should keep us going. But yes, there are times, Hillary, when. Uh, what I do sucks. <laughs> but, but you just have to get up and you know, literally every morning every morning I get morning. out of bed by saying up and at <laughs> I go upward Today's and onward. Same day. sort of
3: thing. Upward and onward. Get out of that <laughs> exactly. bed. You know, your mother thankfully lived to be ninety-six. That's pretty extraordinary. Yes. Gloria Steinem once pointed out contrary to the stereotype of sweet, soft spoken grandmothers, uh many women women only become more forceful in their (laughs) worldview as they age. And, you know, you think about it. I mean, you got nothing left to lose. Just let it rip, girl. Let it rip.
8: That's what I say. (laughs) If you don't mind, Harley, I wish you could have let her rip more when you were running against, you know, who... Because that was such a bizarre campaign. Uh, how did you even know how to act with, that was with the this bizarre behavior? You know, yeah. I mean,
3: it was such a dilemma every day because the sort of stereotype of the angry woman, and even though oh, we, yes. don't, we don't feel like we're angry, we feel like we're telling the truth, we're trying to stand up against, you know, absurd and, and mean-spirited things, you know, it's such a balance beam. And the benefit of, you know, your being able to do that now and I'm so grateful you are, is the people of Hawaii, your state, they know you. You know, (laughs) they know you and they have come not only to, you know, respect, but to love you. And you've been in public life for such a long time. That's the way I felt when I was a senator from New York. But when you get on the big national stage with the Electoral College and like, you know, 1,000 votes here makes a huge Mm -hmm. difference. It's a really tough calculation.
8: Truly, and the, those gender stereotypes uh, are very much alive and well. Mm-hmm. When people you would write, oh, she's finally meaning me, finally found her voice. First of all, it made me really pissed off. <laughs> it should um, have. <laughs> but then I said, wait a minute, I've always had a voice. We've always had a voice. We just, we need to use it more right. in ways that right. that are truthful and authentic and real. And so I'm so glad that I'm at the point where somebody like Trump evoked the usage of my voice to a really large extent. And if it is very freeing it is. to be more my complete self because now I use my head, my heart and my voice. Yes. Well, that's
3: what one of the aspects of your um, memoir that I found personally so interesting because you can see you gaining that voice and frankly, the willingness to stand up to the men around you in your life, in politics. Um, you've spent now, uh, more than five decades in public office.
8: <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs>
3: no, but, but you know, there were instances in those early years in your political career when the men around you, men, frankly, you had helped get elected. Yes. <laughs> were actively discouraging you from running for office. But you sometimes would sort of exceed, and then you started getting upset, and then you started standing up, and then you kept going. And it's a fascinating Very candid depiction of that, Maisie.
8: And and also, as I was experiencing this, it wasn't as though I thought, oh, these these guys are exhibiting their gender biases. Uh, It took me a long time to sort of, especially writing the book is when I realized over the time of my life in politics, how often the men... uh, would say it's not your turn mm-hmm. and you haven't done enough or what's your record, et cetera, and you know a lot of times women we think that it's our fault that we're we're not we're not good positioning, enough positioning yeah. we're not positioning ourselves mm-hmm. or whatever it is and mm-hmm. and I realized sure, there could have been things that I could have done better, et cetera et cetera, but uh, when I think about the gender issues that 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 have more. Uh, Impact, I think, on my political life, especially in a place like Hawaii, which is very uh, diverse culturally. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have so many of those uh, racial kind of issues that uh, were much more prevalent uh, on the mainland against people like me.
3: We'll be right back.
7: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: When you got to the Senate, did you feel that the culture shifted, that you were accepted as one of a hundred, or were there still, you know, these challenges that you kept confronting?
8: I think so because there are these notions that people have about uh, someone who's Asian, we're very cooperative, demure, reserved, and, and to the extent that I wasn't as noisy, as vocal as I am now. I think that some of my female colleagues had those notions, <laughs> I would say. And so I think it's a recognition that I have, and, and also to realize that as an Asian person, uh, we are not much heard from and our voices are so much more uh, evident because of the rise in hate crimes against Asian-Americans, Pacific Islanders during COVID. And I've never seen so many Asian voices and faces on news uh, than during this time.
3: Well, and you you were one of the really strong leaders in uh you know, the combating of the hate crimes and violence against uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And, and you were the lead sponsor in the Senate of important legislation about
8: hate crimes. Yes, I've gotten feedback from a number of people who uh, say, thank you. You, you know, we, once you start speaking out, you can't go back. And you, you ask, well, some of my male colleagues, they've never had to deal with a an Asian woman who was a senator, I'm the first. And right. so somewhat unusual for them. And because I'm very outspoken and I actually have been known to swear mm-hmm. at uh, <laughs> some of them, and it's just they, they really don't know how to respond, mm-hmm. which is fine with me.
3: <laughs> have you found as, um, you know, you've gotten older, um, we're the same age, that you feel you know, freer to be more outspoken with your colleagues, with the media, obviously anybody uh, who you think uh, deserves to be uh, confronted.
8: Yes, Mm -hmm. I do. I don't know whether it's the life experience process. I I know for a fact that Trump and all the horrors that he unleashed— uh, and the, the daily attacks on the body politic, that has something to do with my speaking up against the biggest bully of them all. And also, Hillary, I think it it is also uh, my health diagnosis. And that that's something else that does make you realize life is short, you better get on with things.
3: I know. <laughs> I know. I, I remember when I, I heard about it. And of course, I was concerned, like everyone who Knows and admires you, uh, and, and you called
8: me. Thank you. I
3: well, I I was thinking about you, and and wanted to add my best wishes. And you just kept going. I mean, you you were indefatigable, and. Anybody who thought that it would slow you up was sadly mistaken, as we all could see firsthand. So, Maisie, if you were speaking to younger women or even your younger self, uh, what would you tell them about what's the best and the worst thing about aging?
8: (laughs) Well, you know, considering the alternative to aging, what the hell, right? (laughs) So I think that uh, it took me a lot longer to... um, become more fully myself by using my voice as well as my head and heart. And so I would encourage young women to truly be true to yourself, ourselves, and that's easier said than done. But don't be afraid. That doesn't mean that we're just going to be running around, you know, being angry and all that, but be very focused on what we're doing, but to trust yourself. That's
3: wonderful advice.
8: I'm still working on it, by the way.
3: We are. <laughs> I, I agree with you completely. That—that That is the other thing I would say is you know, the, the journey doesn't end at some specific age. It's a learning process. You do get better, but, you know, it's never never a goal that you will achieve. You have to keep... It's never
8: done. It's <laughs> never done. You have
3: to keep working at it. And yeah. uh, we will, in great measure, thanks to leaders like yourself, Maisie. I mean, I am so grateful to you for the leadership you're showing and the strength of your conviction, and yes, the very powerful voice that you uh, bring to <laughs>
8: all of these matters. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> it means a lot, truly, coming from you, Hillary, and uh, you are um, another trailblazer. So Thank you. <laughs> Senator
3: Mazie Hirono's memoir, Heart of Fire, an Immigrant Daughter's Story, comes out in paperback this April. And if you've enjoyed my conversations with these older and bolder women, you will love my conversations with distance swimmer Diana Nyad and with the one and only Gloria Steinem, both from season one of You and Me Both. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin, Kathleen Russo, and Rob Russo, with help from Puma Abedin, Oscar Flores, Lindsay Hoffman, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Laura Olin, Lona Valmoro, and Benita Zaman. Our engineer is Zach McNeese, and original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like You and Me Both, please tell someone else about it. And if you're not already a subscriber, what are you waiting for? You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week when we'll definitely be older and hopefully bolder, too.